Our reading today is from the book of John, chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to them to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, 
what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So today's message is called Following Me, uh, Following Christ, rather. And the, the main idea in this passage is that Jesus calls Peter after restoring him to follow him. And Peter is constantly looking outside of Christ for uh, any amount of uh, comparison, commendation. He's he's always jockeying for position. You ever seen a race where they're constantly vying with each other, these guys on these horses, and they're just trying to get set up in a good position for the final breakthrough to win the race. And Peter is so concerned with everything around him that he's not following Christ. We talked about this a little bit last week when we were discussing the nature of fear, that fear uh, actually causes you to become like the thing that you are afraid of, because whatever you are beholding, you become like. If you behold God and you uh, approach him, you become wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why is it the beginning of wisdom? Because you are approaching and beholding God who is wisdom in himself. And so we, we saw how fear distracts your attention. And if you've ever driven a car or ridden a bike or even uh, riding a horse, wherever your eyes are looking, you're going to drift that direction. If you've ever been through driver's ed, that's the secret of driver's ed is look far down the road. Don't worry about the bumpers here. Don't worry about the margins, so to speak. Worry about where you're pointed. And if you worry about where you're pointed, then you're going to go in a good direction. And so here Jesus Christ is trying to call Peter's attention away from all these things that he's concerned about that will lead to shipwreck and and call him back to himself. And so in today's reading, I want to look at seven elements of today's text that give us a little bit of an understanding of what Jesus is doing in this passage. First, I want to look at how the disciples are to be fishers of men. And it seems to me, although this isn't explicit in the text, it seems to me that they've become discouraged, distracted, and they're reverting back to an old way of thinking, an old way of approaching their lives that shows that their hopes are really dashed. Uh, now that, again, that's inference. That's not explicit in the text, but I think it's pretty clear. I think it's, it's a it's a safe inference to make. I want to look at the charcoal fire that shows up on this beach and why it, it is mentioned. I am firmly convinced that no word of scripture is pointless. And what Jesus is doing in setting up this charcoal fire, he understands full well what's going to happen both in Peter's life and the way that the narrative is written down, that we will be able to key in on a little bit of meaning of what's going on here. I want to look at the untorn nets That is, this great haul of fish comes in, and these nets, which should have torn, 
it was a miracle in this passage that they didn't, what that speaks to concerning the effectiveness of the gospel and God's work in your life and those who you minister to. These nets are untorn. They should have torn. And there's a reason that they don't. They, they're here to speak of something. I want to look at the recognition that they have in the meal with Jesus Christ. In previous days in Easter, we've looked at uh, how Jesus was recognized when he showed his hands, his side. But here, he's not recognized by demonstrating wounds in a hand or in the side, but rather in a meal. And what that says to us concerning communion and uh, fellowship with our uh, brothers and sisters. I want to look at the restoration that Christ does concerning Peter. This could, this section could be multiple messages on its own. In fact, we've, uh, in years prior, we've spent many weeks just on that idea. I want to look at the sidelong glances that I mentioned earlier, that Peter's always turning away from his primary attention. He's moving his eyes off of Christ and onto someone else. And then finally, I want to look at the closing of the Gospel of John. We're possibly going to read, we're going to read at least one quote from a song that I think is one of the most beautiful examples of poetry that I know of, and then possibly a quote from a theologian, just to convey how John is intending to end his gospel. And this is really going to be our end of our time in John. If you remember back to both Lent and uh, Epiphany, we've spent a lot of time this year in the book of John, and here we come to a close. So this is going to be uh, building, this message is going to build on all the ideas that we've talked about. Um, there will be enough background for, for those of you who have never heard uh, any of the prior messages that we've been talking about in John. But, but the way that we're going to approach this is that the details of the scripture, the details in this story, are actually, uh, they contain meaning. And we're going to look at some of those things uh, today. So these disciples are called by Christ to be fishers of men. How many of you remember that? When Jesus calls his disciples, they're tending these boats. They're uh, working the job that their parents had, that their father had. And they are going after the same uh, lifestyle, the same industry that their, their father had been uh, working in. And they are just tending these these nets. They're actually mending nets at one point, and then another time they're fishing. And Jesus Christ calls them, and he uses a play on words. He uses a metaphor intentionally to say that you are fishermen, and I am calling you to be fishers of men. Now, this is a symbol of what Christ is all about. He is going to set up a group of people who will work together in such a way, not as fly fishers, not as pole fishers, but rather as net fishers. How many of you have ever seen fly fishing? It's extravagant. It's showy. You got, you, first of all, you have these wonderful tackles and, and these little bait traps that are beautiful works of art in themselves. And then there's this whole nice dance uh, that they have to do with this pole in the air. It's, it's, all, it's a lot of ceremony, uh, it's a lot of uh, extravagance, and yet this is not the type of fishing that Jesus Christ is calling the disciples to. Now, I believe in individual Bible studies and conversions, and that's wonderful. But the, the main idea is that these disciples are going to work together. You can't net fish by yourself. And these disciples are going to work together in such a way as to be spreading a message which will draw in fish. Now, unfortunately, you and I, were compared to fish here. Um, that's, uh, that's not very pleasing. Fish are smelly and dirty and live in bad places and eat terrible things. Um, but, 
But these fish are speaking of people. And so Jesus Christ calls them, instead of fishermen, he calls them to be fishers of men. He, he's sending them with a message and a mission that is going to draw people. It's going to gather people. And so Simon seems absolutely lost in these uh, events. He, he reverts back to this former way of life. He basically is sitting around with these other disciples. There's seven of them. And, and he's basically saying, I'm going to go fishing. You know, what do you do when there's nothing else to do? You go fishing. I don't think it's recreational. I think Peter is basically at this point where he doesn't understand what's going on. The resurrection was completely missed by all the disciples and he's lost. He's confused. And so it seems that Christ from the text is not present in a daily way with the disciples, right? Because at one point in this passage, it says this is the third time that Christ was manifested to his disciples. So that means to me that here we, on another week later, after the first two uh, revelations of Jesus Christ, that Jesus shows up again, both setting setting a pattern for the Lord's day being the first day of the week, and also uh, giving us understanding that the way that they are to follow Christ is no longer uh, it's it's no longer going to be the same. These disciples were used to hour by hour, minute by minute, living with Jesus Christ in the flesh. And I think that what Jesus is doing is he's pe- he's preparing the disciples to walk by the Spirit instead of what they see. He's training them for his ascension. And so John 21, 3, Simon Peter said, I'm going to f- fishing. And we know rightly that Simon Peter is usually a representative of all the disciples. Look at what happens. They all say, we're going with you. So they're all okay with this. They, they, all, they all are fine with this idea, we're going to go fishing, which isn't necessarily a sin unless it's attended to a lack of faith or, or doubt like we talked about last week. Now look at what happens, and this is why we have strong confidence in saying that this is they're broken, they're in despair, they're not able to actually do this skill. Uh, I don't know about you, but there are a few things that I've been doing in my own life all my life. One of those things is working with electronics and computers. And what happens in this passage is, is if you imagine this, whatever your skill is, whether it's you know woodworking or finances or what, whatever it is, you are not able to do any even small amount of progress in something that you've done your whole life. These are fishermen. They've done this their whole life. As soon as they were able to not fall off the side of the boat and drown, their dad had them on boats, training them and, and working with them. Uh, it's, once your kids get you know significantly old enough, they become a source of chores and, and revenue. And so the dads had these kids on boats. They were, they were schooled in fishing. They were good at it. And so these disciples are not able to catch anything. There's something miraculous going on. God is doing something here. He's trying to get their attention, and he's trying to say something to these guys who should have been able to catch fish all night. Without being connected to Christ, the disciples proved to be absolutely powerless. Jesus Christ said in John 15 that I am the vine and you are the branches. How many of you have ever cut off a branch from a a bush or a tree? What happens to the branch or the bush? It dies. It can't bear fruit. Now, if you really closely and carefully and immediately root it somehow, some other way, graft it probably, you can maybe save it. But it's a risky thing to do. And so Jesus is saying that if you're not connected to the vine, you will wither and die. 
You got to get reconnected immediately. And so he says that apart from me, you can do nothing. That doesn't mean apart from me, you can be minimally effective. It means you can't do anything at all. And so these disciples in their experience are, they're witnessing firsthand what it looks like to go about their business without Jesus Christ's involvement. They catch nothing at all. It's interesting to me that actually the disciples, we understand from the context and from history that they were fishermen, but in the gospels, the disciples catch no fish, at, not in this story or any other, unless Jesus Christ speaks a word. I think that's significant. Now, notice also here, this is taking place at night. If, you, if you've been listening to any of the John messages that we've done in this, in this book, We've been talking about this theme of light and darkness, and this has been a major framework for understanding the book. The disciples go out at night. Peter denies Christ at night. And so first there was evening, and then there was what? Morning. This is a transition. The resurrection is a transition out of darkness and into light. Jesus Christ here in restoring Peter is going to do something in which he demonstrates to Peter that he is the light of the world before Peter can be the light of the world. And so just as day was breaking, verse 4, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. Look at what Jesus is doing. He's asking them if they are aware of their condition, and then they respond correctly, they respond no, and then he gives them a word. He speaks into the situation and commands them to do it again. He says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. I don't know about you, there's only two sides to a boat, and if the left isn't working, a few hours later you might start trying the right. It's not the case that they hadn't tried the right side of the boat that evening. They had probably thrown out nets every direction, maybe tied some little basket to an anchor. They're looking for anything at this point. And so Jesus is not saying that you're just doing the technique wrong. He's saying that I haven't spoken, and that's why you're not catching anything. And so Jesus speaks. They catch something. It says, so they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The idea is that without Christ, you can do nothing. If Christ even speaks but a word, one simple command, it bears fruit. This is what your life looks like when you're not hearing the words of Christ. Not only are you ineffectual mission-wise, that is, those who you're sharing with, but you can't even live. You can't even breathe without the word of Christ being injected into your life. And so Jesus is demonstrating through this event, he's orchestrated, he's superintending his will upon this situation. And so Jesus is opening their eyes to the necessity that they be connected to him, that they be following him, that they be listening to him. So here we see them catch. I'm convinced that much of our lack of authenticating signs and wonders is because we are ignorant of the word of Christ. That is, we do not have a recognition of him. What happens right before he speaks to them, it says they did not recognize that it was Christ. They didn't recognize that it was Jesus. Somehow, something in the physical and spiritual uh, event that takes place here is they weren't able to recognize. It's not as if Jesus, like, you know, like a butterfly metamorphized into a different looking person. That's not, that's not the point here. Is the point is that in some way they were blinded to the reality of his presence in, in their midst. He was 
he was not able to be perceived by them. He, what Jesus is doing is he's teaching the disciples, it's not walking according to what you see, it's walking according to the spirit. So Jesus opens up their eyes and when Simon recognizes Christ in the middle of the work, he swims to shore. He, he's, uh, whenever you're working really hard, uh, you might take off your shirt if it's a summer day. How do you know it's summer in Dayton? There are men walking without shirts. And it, it's just a fact of our, our culture in this city. It's wonderful. Embrace it. We're here. And, and that's how you know it's summer in Dayton, Ohio. And so Simon here is, he's disrobed. He's working in a t-shirt and skivvies. There's a British word for you. And uh, he's, he's working uh, in such a way as to not, you know, ruin his nice clothes. And so what happens is Peter takes this cloak, he puts it back on. Speaking of us being clothed with the righteousness of Christ, he jumps into the water and wants to be with the Lord more than catching the fish. Peter recognizes he needs to be with the Lord. He puts on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Notice John's humility in writing. John is the one who recognizes Jesus Christ. And John intentionally in his gospel, this is what we call a sign of authenticity when we're talking about analyzing the scriptures to see if they're you know, real, that is, if they're historically uh, verifiable, is that John uses humility in his address. He doesn't say, and this writer. He says, the one whom Jesus loved. That's significant because John is identifying himself more on the love that Christ has for him rather than what he's going to do for Christ. And if you are familiar with Peter's issues, that is the central sin that Peter commits. Peter constantly is being identified. He calls himself the one who will be faithful to the end, the one who is the greatest among the disciples. And yet Jesus Christ is constantly bringing Peter to recognize his love for Peter rather than Peter's zeal to follow the Lord. So John not only outran Peter to the tomb, but he recognized Christ first. I think there's a reason John outran Peter to the tomb, and I don't think it's because of age. It doesn't, the scripture doesn't imply that Peter was significantly older than John. I think John wanted to find him a little bit more. And so John recognizes Peter uh, sorry, Christ. And when that happens, Simon Peter throws himself into the sea. Simon is completely distraught. He's operating in the shame of his denial. And yet he knows he needs to be with Christ. This is so, this is, you know, when Peter gets it right, he recognizes his need to be with the Lord. As soon as the Lord breaks into the situation, Peter goes to him. He doesn't sit in shame. He doesn't play games. He doesn't try to clean himself up but rather he runs to the shore. He, you know, jumps in the sea and swims. So when Peter arrives at the shore, he sees this fire, which must, in my opinion, have triggered a memory. It's very hard, in my experience, if you've ever been to a GCF uh, cookout, you may know this to be true. It's very hard to get a charcoal fire started. It's very easy if you've got some dry wood with you to, to get a dry wood fire started. Jesus builds a charcoal fire and I think it's intentional. There's only two places in John that a charcoal fire shows up. John 18, 17 through 18, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He said, I am not. This is the final denial that Peter makes. 
to the Lord. Verse 18, now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. This takes place at night. This is a a three times denial, a full denial of association. Peter, this one who said, I will be with you to the end, even if all else desert you, I will stay true. He denies Christ three times at a charcoal fire. Christ is intending to undo that at the same place. Peter denies Christ around a charcoal fire, and so Christ makes a charcoal fire at which he will encounter this Peter, this this sinner. Christ has another goal in mind, and it's not that they would remain in darkness because it's the beginning of morning. It's the beginning of day. And so light is breaking into the situation, and Christ is going to restore Verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Now, notice what happens. Jesus Christ asked them if they have fish. They say no. They get to the shore, and he has fish. And also, he has bread. And then he asked them, bring some fish, because it's time to have a big meal. It's a big party. But notice the fish and the bread that Jesus has laid out and ready for them don't come from him, uh, them. They come from him. He had them. That's significant. Like the coal that's touched to the lips of Isaiah, Christ is going to be purifying these denying lips. These lips, which boasted and denied, are going to be purified so that Peter once again can become the mouthpiece of the Lord, the, the speaker for the gospel as it goes forth through Acts. It's significant to know that that Peter doesn't just overcome his fear of man in Acts 2 when he stands up in front of the whole city of Jerusalem, which just weeks prior had killed God in the flesh. Therefore, he is uh, in a context of great fear, of a great uh, possibility for, for turmoil and judgment. Peter doesn't just overcome his fear of man because of the baptism in the Spirit. That's obviously important, but if Christ had not restored Peter, that wouldn't have taken place. Christ restores Peter. He encounters him. His sins are atoned for. No zeal that you attempt to manufacture, no no bringing yourself near to God through spiritual disciplines will answer the primary problem of the sins which you continue to hold on to. And so Christ is delivering Peter of the great problem in the Gospels. What does Jesus do all throughout the Gospels? He goes around and he heals the sick. He bends up, binds up the brokenhearted. He sets the prisoner free. He speaks to orphans, widows, raises the dead. And what the final sin that remains in the Gospels that's unattended to is the sin in the disciples. And at the close of the Gospel, Christ deals with it. And so he's removing this sin from the heart of Peter. Fish in the, the Bible are always symbols of uh, people, men, mankind, uh, groups of nations that are far away from God. And so these fish, which they catch, are symbols of the nations. The, the 153 fish, which are explicitly identified here, does two things for us. First, it says that there wasn't 154 and one got away. It says that there were 153 And all of them were counted. All of them were significant. Many people come to me and they grumble against the Lord and say, I hate numbers. Numbers is just the worst book. I can't find God in it. Well, here's this. 
God has identified his people by name, and none of them are missing. That's the point of the book of Numbers. The point of the book of Numbers is to convey to you that God knows you by name, and that he calls you by name, and those who he calls, he loses none. These nets should have broken, and yet they don't, and there's a reason why. These disciples, by this symbol, are being identified as those who will go into all the world and preach the gospel. Jesus Christ says that this gospel of the kingdom will go into all the world, and then the end will come. And I think it's significant that then the apostles, before the closing of the New Testament, say that this gospel, your faith, has been proclaimed in all the world. Meaning that the end which Christ is prophesying is not the final end, the second coming, it's some other type of end, which we don't have time to cover today. But I just want to convince you of that. These disciples, they're going to go in all the world. Jesus in Acts 1.8 says that this gospel will be first be preached in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, even to the utmost parts of the earth, the ends of the earth. And then before the closing of the New Testament scriptures, Paul says, the, your faith, which has gone out into all the world. There's something there. You should look for it. Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. Now, I don't know. Has anybody seen Wicked Tuna? You've ever seen that show? I, I used to work at a TV company, so I had to watch this. But in this, in this show, they have these fish. Now, get this. These are not fish that you would find in any pond, lake, or stream, or even a big body of water except an ocean. These tuna are five to 600 pounds, sometimes 900 pounds, and like $28,000 for a tuna. Like it's a huge deal when you catch one of these giant ocean tunas. Now, I don't think there are ocean tunas in the Lake of Galilee, but here they are described as large fish, fish that you can't deal with on your own. They're fish which need hauled in in a large net. And so here, these fish are coming in and the nets are untorn. Why are the nets untorn? Because the untorn nets are a sign of the effectiveness of God's calling in the gospel. Jesus Christ in John 6 says, those who the Father gives to me, I lose none of them. That doesn't say that those who the Father gives to me, I lose occasional backsliders. It says, those who the Father gives to me, I lose none. That gives you great confidence in the gospel, that if, you are, if you've been called, if you know Christ today, if you know in your heart of hearts, if you have an authenticating confirmation by the Holy Spirit that you are a child of God, your, your safety is guaranteed. That doesn't mean you can go out and live a life of sin or, or flirt with you know, temptation. In fact, actually, that confidence, if it is true, will actually produce a greater zeal in you because you will be freed from the attempts to clean yourself up and keep yourself before the Lord. But rather, it will produce in you zeal, holiness, a desire to be close to him. Why? Because he's given you everything. That's what we were singing about earlier. In death and life, I'm confident that I'm covered by the power of your great love. That's what it means to see the perseverance of the saints in the text of the scripture. None of these nets tore, none of them at all. And so God is effective in his gospel call. And, and, uh, and so he's bringing in this great harvest of fish. And this is kind of an interim in the story of, of the restoration of Peter. He's saying that the mission which he is going to send these people on is guaranteed. 
Why is it guaranteed? Not because of the might of man, but only because of the zeal of the Spirit of God. With man, it's impossible. So unlike this last appearance that happened, we talked about last week, Jesus does not show them the wounds in his hands and his side. He doesn't demonstrate to them who he is by any particular sign, but rather by an event. And that event is a meal. Look at the text of the scriptures. John 21, 12 through 14, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And then look at this time word. Now, that's a time word. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Minutes before, they had not recognized who the Christ was on this shore. And yet Simon and John have this little conversation. Perhaps they were on a boat together. Maybe the other disciples were near them. Usually you spread out the boats because, you know, activity scares away fish and stuff like that. But the disciples come to the shore and he invites them to come have breakfast. And then the text says they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. Again, the bread does not come from the disciples, but it comes from Christ. And that's significant. But, but here, John has a verse that closes this part of the story. And this verse does not come before, but rather it comes right after the meal. If John wanted to, he could have said that when John saw the Lord and said to Simon that it is the Lord and Simon jumped into the water, that then the Lord was made manifest. Then the Lord was revealed, but he does it after the meal, not after they jump out of the boats. Verse 14, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And that's not the closing of the story. That's a summary statement by John to say, here in this meal, they recognize Jesus Christ. Not that at the end of this encounter, because Jesus is about to speak to Peter during the same moment, during the same part of the day. And so the bread is significant, and in the breaking of bread, the disciples recognize a grace in the presence of Christ as he shares with them. The bread does not come from them, it comes from him, and that is speaking to the fact that there is no substitute for the bread of life. You cannot live apart from the bread which was sent down from heaven. Jesus declares himself to be the manna which was sent down from heaven that the Israelites ate in the wilderness. He demonstrates himself to be the, the sustenance, the life-sustaining element that his disciples need. And so this bread of life is here at the shore. And after this meal, we come into the restoration of Peter. Now, this is usually where most people spend a lot of time. We're, we're not going to spend a lot of time, but, but actually very briefly, we'll talk about it. And then we'll look finally at the love of God. Like a master surgeon... Jesus Christ cuts to the root of the issue in Peter's heart. He does not leave a fragment of, of a bullet in, in the body before closing it up. He doesn't leave anything behind. He goes after the infection and he cuts out all that is rotten. The gospel promises that God would create in us a clean heart and he would remove what? A heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. There's an operation going on here. And so Jesus is going to the root of the issue, and he has to make three blows at this sin that's in Simon's heart. Now, Simon's sin in this, in this uh, gospel, in, in all of the gospels, is always comparison. It's always looking at others instead of looking at Christ. And Christ then asks him if his love 
surpasses all the love of the other disciples. Remember, Peter over and over again is saying, even if all else deny you, I will not, I'll stay true. And so what Christ does is he says to Peter, Peter, is this true of you? Does your love surpass? He says, literally, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus is not being mean to Peter. Jesus is helping Peter in the most precious way because he's, he's saying to Peter, Peter, I've known you. I remember this part of our walk together. Jesus is saying to Peter, I've seen your failures and I'm not throwing you away. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? Because Peter has seen with his own eyes that he doesn't. And yet Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. But look at what's absent from Peter's response. He doesn't say, Lord, you know that I love you more than these. He just says, Lord, you know that I love you. And that's precious. That's what a broken response to the heart of God is when when the Lord speaks into your life and says, are you confident that you can stand on your own anymore? And you say, no, Lord, I can't stand unless you support me. That's what Peter's responding with here. He's saying, Lord, you know that I love you. But he's not saying, Lord, you know that I love you more than all the rest of the disciples, and I'm going to be the greatest, and you're going to build your kingdom on me, and I'm going to be the rock which you spoke about, on which you would build the church. That's all gone from Peter. Faithful are the wounds from a friend, which the scripture says over and over in many ways, and faithful is the rebuke that the Lord gives to Peter here in this, in this moment. So Christ asked this question three times to show Peter a total forgiveness for the denials. There are three denials. There are three questions asked, three commands given. Peter, do you love me more than these? Lord, you know that I love you. Therefore, feed my lambs. Jesus Christ is saying to Peter, Peter, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, do what I have called you to do. Feed the lambs. Don't be concerned with how you're doing, how great you look. Be involved in feeding lambs. What's Christ doing at the shore? He's feeding his lambs. He's showing Peter, this is how I have loved you. You are to love those like I've loved you. Peter begins to understand in this account where to place his confidence, not in what he knows, but in what the Lord knows. And look at the final question that's asked. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus is kind of backing off here a little bit. He, he knows that Peter gets it. In the way that it's written, he just says, Peter, do you love me? Are you, are you confident to just ask that, answer that question? And Simon then says, Lord, you know all things. Gone is his confidence in himself. Gone is his ability to say, Lord, I love you. He says to the Lord, Lord, you know that I love you. The knowledge and the, the, what, what matters is no longer what Peter thinks, but what the Lord thinks. You know that I love you, Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So Peter's chief sin of pride in this gospel, in all the gospels, is the pride of sidelong glances. And what I mean by that is you're going on a, a journey, you're going to a meeting, you're doing something important where your eyes should be forward, and you are looking to your right, to your left. You're looking to your neighbor to compare yourself with them. You're, you're thinking how you do that compared to how they do that. This is what a sidelong glance is. It's looking at your neighbor's stuff or your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's husband and becoming 
envious and jealous. It's looking at other, another person's success and hating them because you don't have that success. That is what a sidelong glance is. It's, it's looking away from your intended target and looking around at something you shouldn't be looking at. And this sidelong glance is Peter's bread and butter. This is how he lives and operates. This shows up as boasting, but boasting always comes with comparisons. Like we talked about last week, fear and doubt are always married. Boasting in yourself always comes with a comparison. It always, they're always joined together, and you can't do one without the other. Peter's whole identity is built upon comparing himself with others. That's what he confidently asserts over and over again in the Gospels. Verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? I think this is beautiful because it shows to me, and I think it should show to you as well, that Jesus Christ knows that he can confidently produce a good work in you. When all that's there is terrible, terrible clay, he knows he can reform not only the clay, but make something beautiful. And so Jesus just has restored Peter. He's just encountered Peter and confidently said that he has a new mission. He's no longer disqualified, but rather he should be feeding the lambs, tending to the sheep, being a pastor, being a someone who is protecting and warring against wolves and feeding and making sure these tender lambs are secure. And yet Peter immediately starts to ask questions about other people. He, said, he looks over at John and says, what about this guy? Because he knows that John's a good disciple as well. John over and over again in the Gospels is demonstrated as someone who knows that the Lord loves him. He doesn't have to be asked the question, John, do you love me? In the Gospels, it's clear John loves because Christ loves him. And so Peter is asking this question, what about this man? Peter immediately turns and starts to compare once again. And Jesus is confident and says to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. That's beautiful because Jesus right here, if there was ever a time to finally be done with Peter, it would be right here. What happens? Peter says, follow me. He's, Jesus is at this point, uh, if he was going to sin, he'd be here. I don't know. Uh, if I was there, I would have gotten it wrong. I would be done with Peter. I would have said, Peter, let's just email about this later. And, uh, and so Jesus says, follow me. And so, so here Peter is given a 33rd and a half chance. He's given a final, final chance here. And, and Jesus, basically to kind of say to Peter, Peter, this is ridiculous what we're talking about here. He, he uses hyperbole. If it's my will for this person to remain until I come, what is it to you? The point being that, Peter, your, your comparison is leading you into ridiculous places. And he's trying to show that to him by this, by this uh, question. Christ delivers Peter from this sin, and he calls him back to the center to follow him. This is where we have confidence to know that God will continue to call us back to himself, seeing what Peter can get away with, so to speak, what the grace of God that prevents Peter from running over the cliff, that grace is the same grace for you and me. John closes his gospel, and in fact, there's no even real summary statement of this account. 
Um, but he, he actually just closes very quickly the gospel, and that will also bring us to a close of our message. And in verse 25, he says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I think John is right here, because what this is saying is that Jesus Christ, in every single thing that he did, was so attuned to what the Father was doing and and being able to hear by the Spirit that everything that Jesus did was restorative. It was compassionate. It was a miracle. And every single element of what Christ is doing with his disciples is preparing them for a time in which they will be able to become these fishers of men that he's called them to be. And so John closes his gospel, a gospel filled with miracles, a gospel filled with signs and wonders, with a wonderful story that Christ has finally delivered the last sin that was on the scene in the gospel, that is the sin in Peter's heart concerning his comparison to others. And then he says, now at this point, it's time to close. And John just gives us a little helpful understanding that the love of Christ is not over. Jesus Christ did not stop working after this conversation with Peter, but rather continues to be working today. Christ is working today in your life and in my life to root out issues of sin, to mend, to restore, to save, to heal, to set things right. And this is why we have confidence. The nets that Christ uses will not break. We are offered to participate in this love by Christ by becoming fishers of men, to draw others into this circle, into this uh, atmosphere of protection, of love, of grace that's given freely, of tolerance of people's weakness and sin, such that even after being immediately commissioned, we can mess up and the hammer of wrath doesn't come down. Why? Because it was absorbed by the cross of Christ. That's why Jesus shows what we talked about last week. It was a resurrection of grace. Here, it's a restoration of Peter to grace. Not to law-keeping, not to performing, not to basing Peter's confidence on himself, but rather on what Christ knows. And Christ certainly knows what he's doing in us. I want to read a a short verse from one of my favorite hymns. Uh, We actually have never sung this hymn in this church yet. Hopefully we will in a few weeks. But this is one of, I think, my favorite examples of high symbolism in poetry and song, which talks about the love of God. And this is not actually a song that uh, explicitly uses this idea about writing books, but rather it talks about writing a scroll in the sky. And so if you want to engage your mind in and use your imagination, I would encourage you. If it helps you to close your eyes, you have freedom to close your eyes. But this, in my opinion, is one of the greatest songs uh, or verses concerning the love of God that I've ever found. It's called The Love of God, and it's written by a guy by the name of Patrick Lemon. And this is an old song. This is older than anyone in the room. And um, this song is beautiful. This is the third verse. And it goes like this, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. That's beautiful. That's one of my favorite hymns. And the point of this hymn is that Uh, All of these verbs come after the nouns that accompany them. 
the ocean fell of parchment made. It's, it's great setting of the words, but the idea and which is conveyed is even more beautiful than the language which is used. That's excellent poetry. And this is what John is talking about. And this is what this songwriter has kind of channeled and brought to life through this poem. This is the love of God, which is over you. I want to read one more quote. We're about to end, but this is something that actually was, uh, shared by, um, by my good friend, Scott Persley at the ARC conference. And, uh, this, have you ever had one of those? I, I, I know we're not a Pentecostal church. And so we don't have a lot of amens, uh, fewer than I would like. I, um, and, uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. And so, I need, I need uh, encouragement. Um, no, but uh, I usually don't say a lot of amens. I do occasionally. I think I had like four or five today that I said during the Sunday school hour. But uh, have you ever had one of those amens that comes out of you and it's an accident? You didn't really intend it to happen? As in, it was breathtaking so much that it produced a response in you that you didn't intend. This happened to me yesterday. As soon, as soon as I heard this quote and the way that it was ended, I said, wow, out loud, really, really loudly. Um, but it, it's, it's by a guy, it's not on the screen, so you're, you're going to have to listen closely. It's by a guy named Adam Clark. And uh, Adam Clark was a Reformed theologian who was attempting to describe Genesis 1, uh, verse 3, um, describing God and who he is, the, the Bible which begins with the assumption that God is and exists, Adam Clark is trying to give a definition of who this guy is, this God that we're talking about. And uh, the way it was presented yesterday was so compelling that I thought I had to share it with you. So we're going to close with this. Um, as far as whom human words dare attempt one, that is a definition of God, may be thus given. God is the eternal, independent, and self-existent being, the being whose purposes and actions spring from himself without foreign motive or influence. He who is absolute in dominion, the most pure, the most simple, and the most spiritual of all essences, infinitely benevolent, beneficent, true, and holy, the cause of all being, the upholder of all things, infinitely happy because he's infinitely perfect, and eternally self-sufficient, needing nothing that he has made, illimitable in his immensity, inconceivable, in his mode of existence, and indescribable in his essence, known only fully to himself because an infinite mind can be fully apprehended only by itself. In a word, a being who from his infinite wisdom cannot err or be deceived, and who from his infinite goodness can do nothing but what is eternally just, right, and kind. And this God loves me. That's beautiful. And I think we'll, we'll close with that. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would convince us of the love of Christ, that what he did with Peter wasn't an exception, but it was his mode of living. Lord, we pray that we would see your resurrection power in this time of Easter and that we would comprehend the love of God, which knows no limits. We pray, Lord, that you would convince us of the truth that you, you do love us, that what you've done on the cross was for us. And that even after you're still restoring, you're still calling us to you. We pray Lord that you would deliver us into a new season of following you 
like these disciples were learning how to do, where they were following you by the Spirit, not by their sight. God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.